A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to the 50th episode of A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences from writers to filmmakers, musicians and of course other artists and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode it's A Brush With, Glenn Brown, an artist who takes reproductions of other artists' works including those by old masters, the greats of modern art and science fiction illustrators and transforms them by changing their colour, orientation and size. It leads to painting drawings and sculptures that are often grotesque and macabre but always strangely enticing and resonant. Glenn's work is in part an exploration of the properties of paint but also its wonders and mysteries. He frequently takes paintings made with thick oils and maintains the illusion of that impasto yet paints in thin spiralling and rippling brushstrokes that appear almost photographically flat. What distinguishes Glenn from many other artists who appropriate existing images is a pronounced enthusiasm. Yes, the work is conceptually sophisticated, questioning the authority of the image, the nature of originality and notions of value, but underlying his exploration of existing work is a passion for the artists and the works he responds to. Glenn was born in 1966 in Hexham in Northumberland in the UK and now lives and works between London and Suffolk. He studied at Norwich School of Art and Bath College of Higher Education but it was his MA in the early 1990s at Goldsmiths College in London, then at the core of the so-called Young British Artists Movement, that most profoundly affected the direction of his work, providing the theoretical and discursive structure that continues to underpin it today. He made his first appropriations of other artists' works on that course, including Atom Age Vampire from 1991, his first response to the thickly painted portraits and landscapes of the British painter Frank Auerbach. He would go on to make many more over the coming years, while also adding prolifically to his canon of references, as we'll hear. His work developed quickly in its first decade, as Glenn experimented broadly with his chosen subject matter. Images were stretched, turned upside down, and given eye-popping colour relationships, by the late 1990s, the Auerbach heads began to appear against infinite misty backgrounds, completely reordering their relationship with space. And his wealth of references was even more extensive than it first appeared, as he would adopt particular painters' colour palettes with which to reimagine a chosen image by a different artist. From the mid-1990s, he also began making sculpture, the first made with highly coloured oil paint on acrylic and plaster over a metal armature were great clumps of three-dimensional brush marks, as if Auerbach's painting had somehow wandered off the canvas and onto the plinth. But a hugely important development happened in the late 2000s when Glenn began applying these dense blizzards of brushstrokes to found bronze casts, figures or groups of figures who seemed assaulted by these absurd clumps or from whom painterly growths seemed to emerge and metastasize. The sculptures provide a visceral foil to the flat paintings. Adding to the rich network of art historical references in the imagery are the allusions in Glenn's titles. He often draws from existing cultural forms like songs and album titles. Oscillate Wildly is a reference to the 1980s British band The Smiths. Unknown Pleasures is the title of a great album by another seminal British alternative group, Joy Division. But he also includes knowing references to his own process. The title Secondary Modern for one of his responses to Auerbach refers to a type of state school in Britain, but also evokes the idea of appropriating 
promoting other artists' work. But then some titles pick up on or invent enigmatic phrases that might point us in an unexpected direction. A new painting which lends its title to Glenn's exhibition in November 2022 at Gagosian Gallery in New York is called We'll Keep On Dancing Till We Pay The Rent. This new painting is symbolic of a significant shift in Glenn's practice in that it's based on drawings rather than paintings. And drawing is now at the core of everything Glenn does, not only in the exquisite pen and ink pieces that he himself produces with their dense networks of precise gestures, but in that the paintings too are formed from swirls and hatches of lines. These have led to a new freedom in the work, and it's this with which I began our conversation. I asked Glenn if he felt the journey of his art was a gradual opening up, a drive to greater looseness and improvisation. Yes, I suppose I'd have to say that's quite well spotted. The work has loosened up visually, the marks have become bigger, and to an extent, yes, the planning of what the work is going to look like uh, before I start the work is uh, less regulated than it used to be. I come from a school of sort of Gerhard Richter painting of the 1980s, which involved fundamentally using a source photograph or image and working that up into a painting. Quite early on, I realised that you had to repaint areas, glaze things, change colours. So there was always improvisation going on. I was always reacting to the paint I'd already put on the panel or canvas. But about six years ago, I stopped painting and just started drawing. And so now all of the subjects for the paintings are drawings, or usually old master drawings, and very often they're overlaid one on top of another and I reconfigure them and so I have a very loose idea of what the actual finished painting is going to look like now which is a big difference than from before. Does that make it harder when you're working with such precision? There are wonderful videos online of you painting and you see the way that you apply the paint there's an unerring kind of directness about it but also an incredible sensitivity and I wonder is that more difficult when you don't know where you're going in in such a precise way as you might have in the past the newer paintings based on the drawings uh, because I don't know what I'm doing unfortunately it involves a lot of overpainting so I'll have to work something out underneath and then it gets overpainted and then that gets overpainted again And I thought this whole process of working from drawings was going to be much quicker to do, but it's not. It's slower, unfortunately. And for some reason, the paintings have got larger as well. So these new paintings are taking me longer to do than the previous paintings. But that's fine because I enjoy the process. Um, It just means there's less of them. So a lot of the working out of what's happening goes on in the process of painting and especially when there's more than one image overlaid on top of another. Some of them are multiple heads. And when you're making a drawing, it can be translucent. The nature of a drawing is that you see through it to a large extent. And you can get away with murder with the drawing when it comes to spatial depth. When as soon as you start putting colour and tonal form onto it, almost like the flesh on the bone of a drawing... You have to decide whether one mark comes in front or behind another, and that has to be worked out for the thousands of brush strokes that are created on the canvas. Because all of the brush strokes are artificial to some extent. I paint paint, I paint other people's brush strokes. 
or rather they're my brush strokes now because I have to completely reinvent them from scratch so absolutely um, I wanted to ask you about the process of forming those multiple images because on the one hand they seem in the process of becoming or forming and on the other hand there's an element of decay which has been a sort of consistent element of your work as you're making the image do you like to make sure that you've got that tension that in a way you can lead the viewer in multiple directions Yes, I mean, it's the process of making the painting is very much a sort of fight between trying to make something which is solid and believable and exists in this three-dimensional realm, the other side of the picture plane. I mean, all of my work is doesn't sit on the surface of the canvas. It's very much not modernist. It all exists on the other side of the picture plane and therefore in this fantastical world. And so I spend a long time trying to make everything look believable. I have imaginary light sources coming in and creating colour changes throughout the work as well. And I create shadow in the work and white highlights in order to create this idea that there's some sort of sunlight or whatever, something lighting the figure or the portrait. But then I try to break that apart and there's a certain degree of translucency going on there as well where the figure's, as you say, is starting to decompose. So it's a process of building up and destroying both at the same time in many ways to make a painting. I wanted to ask about colour and particularly about the fact that I know that you almost treat colour as a ready-made in the same way that you might take an existing image so that you might choose colour from a Dugar painting or from pop works or whatever. Is there any looseness within that as in how strictly do you select a palette and stick to it? Oh, not strictly at all. I really like to uh, have a starting point where I think I want this painting to have the colour feel of a particular work. For instance, there's a painting I'm working on at the moment where the colour comes from a um, Ernst Ludwig Kirchner painting. Kirchner is an artist I've used a lot in terms of colour. It's wacky colour, really. It's It's sort of beginning of the 20th century and... I don't know what was going on in Berlin at the time. Well, I know certain things that were going on in Berlin at the time. In terms, the economy was going crazy. They had street lights for the first time, which would have been gas. So people could walk at night as well. And promenading at night is a very common theme for Kirchner's paintings because it was a new and modern thing. But everybody was lit with gaslight, which gives this strange, slightly greeny-yellow glow to everybody. And therefore, it's one of the reasons Kirchner's colour is just whacked. It's not daylight colour at all. It's this artificial colour of the nighttime, And therefore, everybody looks slightly zombie-like, which I adore. So I start with this colour palette from one particular painting of Kirchner's in this instance... But it's very loose. Uh, I can invent colours. It's an art, not a science, very definitely. You have a retrospective next year. And I always think it's interesting to talk to an artist ahead of a retrospective because it's a moment where you necessarily reflect upon what you've achieved up to now. I see certain turning points in your work where you started to use less defined backgrounds in the works influenced by Frank Auerbach, for instance, and then where these sort of abstract shapes like I think you call them blobs uh, appear in the work and so I wonder do you see those shifts you've described one in terms of turning to drawing recently but can you look back over your career and see those shifts and developments oh very clearly I've tried to change the work when I make a painting I 
never want to repeat myself. Apart from anything else, it's just boring to have to do a few feet sitting in the studio for months on end and feel, well, I've done all this before. Why am I repeating myself? Um, I just couldn't have the will to do it. So I have to feel excited to come in and spend the many hours uh, that it takes to make a painting. Basically, it has to be a new jigsaw puzzle every time that you're trying to resolve, resolve without the help of the box lid, of course, if I'm using an analogy of the jigsaw puzzle. Yes, artists should develop and change over time. I mean, I think as people, we change and alter. There's certain themes which exist throughout. There's a certain dark sense of humour that exists throughout the work. But to a large extent, I think when I hang retrospective shows of mine that are combining work from the 1990s to present day I kind of like to mix things up so they become slightly thematically hung chronology is can be slightly boring because it feels like you're trying to give a lecture to the audience and you just want them to enjoy the paintings just as a painting as a portrait of somebody and not get too bogged down with the technical details of whether one colour scheme or background or method of painting is different to another I think to a large extent that the works from 20, 30 years ago can hang with the works I make now. There's often big scale differences, but I like to mix them up. How does sculpture work within your practice? Because I was struck by just how many sculptures you make when I looked at the like the inventory of your work on the website. And it seems to me that some artists use sculpture as a kind of pause between their painting work, for instance. How do you use it? Does it exist contemporaneously with the painting? Are you working on both at the same time or do you almost treat them as separate projects? I make them at the same time and they take a long time to make like the paintings uh, because they're all built up with uh, oil paint. I'm basically applying oil paint with a brush onto a three-dimensional surface and there's usually a core of acrylic paint or some sort of metal armature that I'm starting with just to give it some degree of solidity but then there's an awful lot of oil paint on top and oil paint is very slow drying which is why it's stable and very nice for artists to work with but it does mean that you have to wait sometimes weeks months for one layer to dry before you can start painting on top of it again so sculpture usually takes one to two years to make So I have lots of unfinished work in the studio all the time and I'm just slowly building things up and working on quite a number of works. I'll have probably about six sculptures on the go at the moment, but then I have about six or seven paintings on the go as well. But the same brain processes that I use to make a painting, I use to make a sculpture. I can just feel the same sensation in my head when I'm trying to figure out what colour should go where and I'm using the same understanding of composition and line and form and trying to get the viewer's eye excited when they're looking at the work by making their eye move around it should sort of bounce around the painting in a very controlled way and again similarly just because it's a sculpture doesn't really make any difference it still has to have a strong compositional sense so use colour line and form and tone I should say to move the audience's eye around the work and it's just with the sculpture you walk around and it's sort of almost several different paintings put together in a three-dimensional sense. 
And can it be as immediate as finishing work on a sculpture or finishing what you can do up to that point on a sculpture and immediately moving on to a painting by just walking across the studio? Or do you, is it that immediate? Uh, but it's that immediate, yes. Uh, in a day, I like to do, even if it's just 20 minutes of painting, getting some more paint on to build the surface up and then going back and doing some drawing and then I'll do a bit of uh, painting. I like to vary my day as much as possible but just it's nice to come in the studio and think what do I want to do today and sort of what do I feel like doing so it's it's all a matter of where the mood takes you within bounds I mean, I'm quite strict with myself in, in terms of my work schedule but you mentioned humor there and it seems to me that one of the vital elements of that humor is your titles and they play a really crucial role it seems to me in either sort of welcoming the visitor in taking them somewhere else, prompting perhaps associations they would never make. Tell me about what they do for you in the work. I think it was Bacabia who said that the title should be used as an invisible colour that can be added to any work. And it's this element that should be not part of the painting, I think. It should be an extra that you add to the painting, So to me, calling a painting untitled, well, you are describing something. Untitled is a title. It does say I I have no words to use about this particular image of you, an artist. But I genuinely do have words to use and feel that I want to embellish as much as possible. When I paint, I spend a long time embellishing the paintings to get as much detail in there as possible, to keep the viewer as entertained as possible for as long as possible. So the title becomes an extension of that, where I'm really kind to keep the viewer questioning and puzzling as to what on earth's going on here, and hopefully they'll find some answers in why the title is so bizarre, and it won't be quite as alienating as it may at first seem. But sometimes the title will appear to be almost the opposite of, a, of the work. I mean, for instance, there's a painting called Sex. It's based on a Van Dyke portrait of a man, and he looks very unsexy. But that's absolutely the point. You look at it and go, sex? Oh, my God. And, it, and lots of strange, cadaverous thoughts come into your head. So it's bringing the idea of life and vitality to this portrait that looks rather dead. And so, it, yes, it's bringing an invisible colour. That's what the title does. Is it right that, well, it's been interpreted that sex is a self-portrait? Have you got a view on that? There was a collector, David Teeger, and he always referred to it as the self-portrait. And I had no notion that it was a self-portrait. And he said, oh, come on, Glenn, it looks like you, for goodness sake. So we used it now and again when somebody asked for a portrait of me for many years, I think after I was in the Turner Prize, I decided not to be photographed by anybody. I wanted to be completely anonymous. So for about 15 years, I wouldn't let anyone photograph me. And so this painting was the stand-in for any portrait of me. But again, it was meant to be funny. It's sort of, it's not what I would like to look like, but the portrait is blue with a red nose. Exactly. And... Yes, looks on the wrong side of living, but yes, humour.
So let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? Well, the thing that probably changed me the most was a book I was given by my brother when I was about 14 or 15. It's called Images of Horror and Fantasy by Gert Schiff. And it's early 1970s catalogue for an exhibition that was in various uh, museums in America. And it's exactly what it says on the box, basically. Uh, it's images of horror and fantasy, and it's it's painting, a sculpture, film. And it has artists like uh, Dali and Magritte, but then it has Van Dyck and Francis Bacon... It's absolutely contemporary, and it's it, it, the old master painting as well. It, there's Holbein in there. Um, anything that can, comes under the theme of images of horror and fantasy, and obviously as a teenager, I just thought this is fantastic. This is exactly what art should be, fantastical. And that book probably had a bigger impression on me than anything else could because I still think I'm trying to paint paintings that were going to go into that museum exhibition and the various themes that it had in it. I should, should just I have the book sort of nearby me. Yeah, yeah. I should yeah. just read out some of the, um, the themes that, that the exhibition had. It started off with fear and despair, then religion, superstition, uh, captivity, madness, pain and torture, sex, sadism, death, war, dream, and then ended with Utopia, Arcadia. So you can sort of see that it's sort of the full-on sort of uh, extremes of what, teenage boys like to uh, <laughs> think of as great art. So yes, there's sort of artists like Max Ernst and um, William Blake, George Gross, Edward Keenholz, all sorts of sort of entertaining horrors to be fantasised about. But I still like that, that idea of that an image can be both humorous and grotesque, beautiful and ugly, um, happy and sad, those complete opposites of emotion. I think my work is quite operatic to that extent. It's sort of, it's not real life. Well, hopefully it's not real life. Um, it's a sort of heightened version of reality. I mean, you mentioned Dali there. It's a good point to talk about Dali. He's, he was the first artist that I liked, and I'm sure that's common to lots of people, you know, that, that I really grasped and wanted to find out more about. You've made works very directly in response to Dali, particularly early in your career. What was it that attracted you to his work? I mean, obviously, he's in that book, as you say. But, you know, there are many other artists that you mentioned that you haven't referred to. So why Dali? I remember... I was making paintings for an exhibition and I went to see the Dali exhibition at the Tate Modern and I just looked at this exhibition and I thought, my work seems so woolly and vague compared to Dali's sense of precision and his crispness. It was like the air was clearer in Dali's world. You could just see more. And it's that crispness he has to the, you know, the clarity of the sky the detail of the objects, the sharpness of line. It is like you've taken some hallucinogenic drug which has sharpened all your senses and this is what the real world is like and your normal world is just dull and pedestrian and slightly out of focus. And he just focuses everything. Hmm. And I think that's what I think Dali is such a genius at. And yes, I liked Dali when I was a teenager, but I still think Dali is one of the greatest painters that ever existed. His draftsmanship is exquisite. He could draw as well as many of the old masters. And 
He managed to screw his reputation up enormously by overproducing, by being obsessed about money, by being sexually perverted and whatever. <laughs> but So he did his reputation no end of harm by the way he lived his life. But when Dali's good, he's better than anybody else. I mean, really better. And just as an example of why I think Dali's so great, there's a painting called Autumn Cannibalism that the Tate have, quite a small painting about the Spanish Civil War, mm. and it's two figures eating each other. And it depicts the sort of the horror and the grotesqueness and the ugliness, but also the inevitability of what was going on in Spain, a country at war with itself, in a way that, Picasso tries to capture in Guernica, but I think Dali does it so much better. He does it with this cruel, grotesque sense of humour that is uh, just emotionally deeper, I think, than even Picasso could manage. That's it's a very small work, but when it comes to capturing what was happening in Spain in the Civil War, uh, there's nothing better. I'm conscious that you, obviously you made a work directly in response to autumn cannibalism. It was a black and white version, as I recall. It's full of extraordinary virtuosity in terms of, I'm thinking of the depiction of the knife, and it's a table knife, and the way the reflection is dealt with, for instance. Did you see it as a painterly challenge when you took on those works? You're talking about this extraordinary mastery that Dali has, but did you therefore set yourself a challenge almost by depicting his works? Yes, with all of the Dali paintings, they're not projected up. They're just done completely freehand, and I sort of start in one corner and work my way across. So there's quite a lot of distortion going on because I don't know quite where I'm going to end up and whether I'm going to get everything the right scale. So I gave myself almost this conceptual plan of how I was going to do the work from one corner to the next. But then I had to go back and rework various points as well, sort of adding glazes, lightening and darkening an area just to get it to fit how I wanted. So at some point I get rid of the reproduction I have of the Dali painting and I just try to make a painting which works in its own accord because I realise I purposefully work from quite bad reproductions. I don't want the, the most crisp, beautiful reproduction of the work. I want something which is a bit discoloured and not even the sort of the biggest image because it gives me room to play with. Um, it, I'm not just making a photorealist painting. I'm actually making a painting which I can then alter and bring myself into. And which historical artist do you turn to the most today? When I understood you were going to ask me this question, I thought, well, I turned to so many different artists that I sort of divided in my head, sort of when I look at an artist, I want certain things from them. So from an awful lot of artists, I want to sort of just to look at their drawing or the way their, the composition works within their, the works. I look at an artist like Henrik Holtius, uh, Dutch 17th century, uh, not particularly well known, I think, in, outside of Holland, but his drawing and his printmaking is absolutely extraordinary, technically utterly brilliant. And his paintings, again, are funny. They're, they're mannerist works, I should mm. point out. He's a very, very mannerist artist, and I like mannerism a great deal. It's not classicism. It's not depicting the perfect world. It's certainly not depicting the perfect human being. He's trying to distort the figure as much as he can get away with manipulating fingers to make them longer feet to make them smaller hips to make them bigger heads often get smaller or larger depending on what he wants to depict and that cleverness of how he sort of molds the human body but his use of line is just 
absolutely exquisite. But there are artists, again, sort of another Dutch artist, Abraham Blumart as well, his drawing is absolutely exquisite. Same periods of 17th century, same as Rembrandt. But I think he can, Blumart can draw Rembrandt out of the room, really. He's sort of... And the humour in Blumart's work as well, and the way he can just catch an eye by two or three simple little marks is, is again, absolutely exquisite. It, maybe it's the technical proficiency which he had, and especially showed off in his uh, printmaking. Maybe that's why people don't like them as much, because they think it's not as authentic as an artist like Rembrandt, and people do so love things to be authentic, even if they're not at all authentic. People are obsessed with authenticity, which I despise. But <laughs> That's I, great. I love, art, I love art and I love music to be as inauthentic as possible and to be able to play games. Freedom of expression is what I admire most of all, I think. But I look at sort of French uh, 18th century art, like um, Jean-Baptiste Gouet, a lot, and Jean-Honore Fragonard and Francois Boucher. In terms of drawing, I think they're utterly brilliant. And there's two, um, again, with Mannerist drawing, Italian, end of the 18th century. It was right at the end of Mannerism in Italy. Abaldo and Gattano Gandolfi, not artists particularly known outside of Bologna, where they came from, but they, again, their drawing is mind-blowingly good and clever and funny and... But then also that that's drawing and then there's sort of just if I want to look at paint, I will look at somebody like Dali and the precision and the way he puts it on or somebody like Parmigianino mm. who can just use colour in the most bizarre way. These glazes of very unrealistic colour can heighten a work into this realm of being in heaven. Well, I'm in heaven when I look at them anyway. And again, his mannerist distortion of the figure with elongating necks is uh, absolutely extraordinary. Looking at your work, I think it was Fragonard who you made the very first sort of direct old master work from. There were artists that you'd referred to before that point. Ben Nicholson first, which is little discussed, but also, you know, Dali, as we said. But I think in terms of like the old masters, pre-20th century masters, am I right in thinking Fragonard was the first that you turned to with his portrait of a young boy as a Piero? Yes. Why that one? What was it that pulled you in with that one? Well, it was in the Wallace collection, and I adore the Wallace collection, and I, so I could visit the actual painting as much as I liked. Also, at the time, I was making work based a lot on Frank Auerbach, and one of the reasons for that is that Frank Auerbach was very unfashionable, especially to the sort of pictures generation that I come from, from the sort of late 80s, 90s. His gestural expressiveness and um, general sort of dirtiness of paint was just not something you were looking at. But that was why I thought it was interesting. I wanted to pick something that seemed outside of contemporary art. And Fragonard, again, sort of still, you know, it's kitsch, it's rococo, it's it's vulgar, all big put-downs to how people might describe it. And that was one of the reasons that it was sort of, it felt outside of contemporary culture, and I liked its exoticism from that degree. But most importantly, I like the brush strokes in it. When you look at Fagonard's paintings, you can very clearly see how much he loved oil paint. He loved the application, the, the butteriness of it, and what you could achieve very quickly in his case by putting the paint on with quite a stiff brush to get nice gestural brush strokes that would animate the surface. 
And that's absolutely what he does is animate everything. Everything is, in his work is on the move. The trees, the landscape, the people, the, the, the skin, the hair, the clothes, everything is, is buzzing with energy because of these brushstrokes that he applies. And you've returned to him as well. I and mean, the Piero is the most famous image that you've returned to. And, you, and you've actually done more than one version, haven't you? But also there's a lovely Fragonard of, uh, head of a boy, which I think is his son. And it's such a tender image. And you, you made a, a version of that too. Yes. Uh, he, he painted his family sort of quite frequently. I've painted also, done paintings of Titus, Rembrandt's uh, son as well. So I think when an artist paints their children they are sort of almost off record. They're not, not trying to make something which is for public consumption. They're just trying to make something to entertain themselves. And maybe that's why there's a tenderness in there, which is outside of their normal work. But yes, I've returned to Fragonard very many times just because of those luscious brushstrokes that I think are very contemporary. They don't go out of fashion as far as I'm concerned. No, they're absolutely gorgeous. I wanted to ask you about Zurbaran because there's one image which I think is among the most striking. And I wanted to ask about it because also it has one of the most striking titles. There's a work called Spearmint Rhino, which people don't know. It's a gentleman's club. I think they're called a a strip club effectively. But you've used Zurbaran's classic image of the Lamb of God, Agnes Day. So I wonder why you combined those two images. It was a kind of deliberate sort of flirtation with blasphemy or tell me more. Well, at the time of making the work, I was a vegetarian and this idea that you could tie an animal up and sacrifice it, not even for sustenance, not to keep you alive, but for some fantastical idea that it was going to appease God, seemed appalling to me. And I genuinely find that work very moving. The ram that's tied up is about to die. It looks as if it knows it's about to die. And in my version of it, it probably is half dead because it's starting to turn green and purple and blue and it has uh, steam or smoke rising from it as if it's starting to disintegrate and disappear into heaven it's a very large painting as well it's much larger than any of the versions uh, that Zerberan did because he did several versions of the same work and I borrowed this sort of setting along the front as if it's sort of sitting on a stage or it's sitting on a cabinet at the front, which is taken from Dali. He would have a landscape and then turn into a chest of drawers at the front. Um, so it's almost as if the landscape becomes a stage. And then it has a strange effect on scale as well. You kind of think, is this an absolutely massive ram or still life sitting in a landscape or is it have I taken drugs and I hallucinating <laughs> it gives a sense of out of scale but the title Spearmint Rhino well I've sort of said it myself the sort of the idea that this lamb is on a stage it's there about to be sacrificed for your entertainment that's why the title comes in because Spearmint Rhino it's a strip club women are sort of they're taking their clothes off and displaying themselves for men's entertainment and titillation and there seems a very strong analogy with the idea of sacrifice that women so often have to sacrifice their natural desires in order to appease man's idea of religious sexual understanding of what how they conceive the world that they give in to men's desires whether they be the religious desires or sexual desires 
Brushwith is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. The free app offers access to more than 90 cultural organisations through a single download, with new guides being added regularly. Among the hugely diverse recent additions are Washington National Cathedral in DC and Western Park, the grand country house with capability brown landscapes in Shropshire, UK. Glenn Brown has shown at a number of the UK's leading art spaces with guides on the app, such as Pallant House, Turner Contemporary and the Whitechapel Gallery. And another great British institution has been added, the Horniman Museum and Gardens in South London. If you download Bloomberg Connect, you can explore the Horniman's atmospheric rooms, including the World Gallery with its 3,000 objects from around the world, and follow routes around the gardens, like the Tree Trail and the Architectural Trail, with accompanying video, audio and text. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Let's talk about contemporary art. Which contemporary artists do you most admire? I find that more difficult than answering the question about historical artists because I probably spend more of my time looking at historical artists than I do contemporary ones. But I certainly have quite a number of paintings by a Dutch artist called Philip Ackerman, whose work I absolutely adore. He only does self-portraits. He's made self-portraits probably for the last 35 years. And they're usually quite small, and he's technically brilliant. The way he applies oil paint and his drawing is really beautiful. He borrows quite a bit from old masters, not that his work looks old mastery at all. It's really quite fractured. Some of them are virtually abstract. Some of them are very, very figurative. So it's very much about not uh, what you paint, but how you paint it. It seems to me it's almost like within the absolutely tightest parameters, he's trying to explore what you can do and push every boundary to its limits. You know. Yes, he really has constrained down to the absolute minimum what he can paint, which is himself. But you really feel that that's enough. He doesn't need any more. He doesn't need to travel the world. He just needs to have a, a mirror. In fact, I don't think he needs a mirror anymore. He sort of knows what he looks like to a large extent. And it's usually fairly grotesque. Uh, he's not there to prettify himself, but he has a lot of fun in the process of making them. And again, his sense of humour is very gritty and wonderful. But technically, he's, he's stunningly brilliant as well and so playful. I admire him very much. But there's artists like Maria Lasnig, who I look at. I remember about three years ago seeing a retrospective of hers in um, Amsterdam, being completely knocked away, again with that sense of humour. And it's painting the human figure. I know Maria Lasnig said, why would I be interested in the background? It's not interested. It's the human figure. It's myself. She almost borrows a little bit from Francis Bacon that the idea of the background is just an additional sort of colour to apply to make the figure look more interesting. But she's not interested in landscape. It's that intensity she gets from just painting the figure. There's one particular self-portrait she has with a, is a fairly old lady. She's naked and she has a gun in her hand which is pointing directly at you as a viewer, and the look on her face is, is absolutely priceless. It's, it's unforgettable stuff, isn't it? You know, once you first encounter her work, it's a visceral shock, and, yeah, it, and it goes on. It's very visceral, in terms, especially in terms of the application of paint as well. It's sort of, she's just very clever, and colour-wise, really good. So playing around with these sort of technicolour elements that are going on within the skin, there'll be sort of blues, purples, greens, yellows, in just in one brushstroke. 
um, apply to skin. So I find her very entertaining. I think in terms of a certain type of painting, when Sigmar Polka died, I thought I loved Sigmar Polka. And it seemed to me that Albert Erlin sort of took the mantle of Polka over to a large extent. I mean, they both make large paintings. They're both very playful and can do anything and they can apply paint in all manner of different ways and they're just endlessly inventive so Albert's work is sort of very important because you just never know what he's going to do next do you think as soon as he's made the audience happy with one body of work he'll go and spoil it and change it and make something completely different and then everybody falls in love with that so he's endlessly entertaining as well Hmm. I wanted to ask you about Gail Bazalitz because I know that the foot paintings that he did have figured in your work in some ways and also obviously by turning an image upside down as you have with the Piero painting and several others that inevitably could be a reference to Bazalitz but would you say he's an influence would you say he's somebody who has affected you oh hugely um it's drawing especially that sort of scratchy awkward sensibility and that sort of dark ugliness he has in his drawing I have reproductions of his work on my studio wall sort of constantly just to remind me of how awkward a drawing should really be in order to activate your eye properly. If anything's too pleasing, it's sort of, it, it's dead, it's it's dull. It, you know, it needs to be that uh, bit of grit in the oyster to get your eye moving. I saw his uh, most recent retrospective in Paris. The Pompidou. The Pompidou. Yeah. I mean, I know I, I love Bazalitz, but I love Bazalitz even more after coming away with that. The broad spectrum that he had, it's, I have to say, it's particularly the early work from the 1960s, the, the hero paintings, and even the work prior to the hero paintings that I find most appealing, and their strange combination of surrealism and expressionism that is quite unlike many other artists. But it was the fact that he's such an awkward sod as well. You could just tell right throughout his career, he was trying to be as as grim as possible. He's, how can I make this painting darker, more disturbing? You know, what combination of colour? Or red and green. Let's do a whole series of paintings that are red and green or just black almost. He's always trying to bring you down. He's always trying to depress you. But in every painting, there's a little bit of light. There's a... There's a blue sky in the background. There's some little element of hope in there. There's some bit of beauty. Then you think, ah, there it is. There's the beauty. And again, it's that mix of the sort of happy and sad and the sort of beautiful and the ugly that he perfectly manages to get in there, to balance, to be entertaining. You mentioned that you've got Bazalitz on the studio. Well, what else do you have? I've got all manner of things. I like lots of artists. I put postcards of things when I go to museums. And so I've got Parmigianino, I've got uh, Egon Schiele, um, Ferdinand Hodler, Courbet. These are generally there to remind me of paintings that I would like to make or elements of these paintings which I really need in all of my paintings and drawings that I make. Once they're up, are they up? Or do you take them down? Do you, do you rearrange? Do you curate your postcards? Once they're up, they're usually up for quite a number of years, I have to say. So you're collecting dust. I've got Toulouse-Lautrec up there, and I've got Bazalitz, um, Pompeo Bertoni, and even these uh, silhouette drawings or tiny little miniature paintings that are made. They're late Georgian, and I just love the sort of exquisite detail of them because even though they're silhouette paintings the hair is painted and it's just the delicacy and don't forget the detail it's just there to remind me i always have a um a print 
uh, Pieta by Hendrik Holtius as well, just to remind me how technically brilliant it's possible to be, because I think that print is one of the, along with some of Dürer's prints, we can't make anything like that now, no matter how many computers you want to use, you'll never create anything as technically brilliant as, as this Holtius print. You talked about Dura there. I was really struck by something you once said that you you took his example of using a toned paper and white highlights, and that was a very direct Dura reference. Yes, I mean there, there are other artists that were doing it, and the Northern European artists from the seventeenth century as well that were using it. And it's yes, it's it's particular look. It's it's it almost creates this sort of crepuscular nighttime feel to the work. You don't know whether it's daylight or moonlight that you're seeing these images in because you're ostensibly you're creating a painting by just adding white highlights just painting with light literally rather than and the shadows sort of seem to look after themselves it's the opposite way that I would normally conceive of making a drawing where you have a white sheet of paper Um, you're starting with black and working to white it's it's a wonderful game fundamentally which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently I suppose it has to be the National Gallery. I mean, I love Tate Modern, of course, but I also have a fond feelings for Tate Britain. It tends to get overlooked, I think, by some, especially tourists. Um, but I worked in the bookshop in Tate Britain for many years. Well, I say that it was Tate when I worked there. Yeah, exactly, because, the Tate Gallery as it was, yeah. Yes, yeah. it did, because Tate Modern didn't exist. And every lunch break I'd be out sort of wandering around the museum sort of looking at various things so to a large extent that was my art education wandering around Tate Britain as it was and I still think I mean that their collection of British art is stunning especially the sort of 17th 18th 19th centuries um, and their collections of Blake are extraordinary but when it comes to museums, I mean, I haven't been for quite some time. The Met in New York, the Metropolitan Museum in New York, is my favourite museum in the world. It's the fact that it has contemporary art, historical art, furniture, art from different cultures. It has a wonderful collection of Egyptian tomb paintings. But it can have a piece of 18th century Chippendale furniture, and then the next room can have contemporary painting in it. And I just love that combination of being able to see culture sort of all messed together because that's how I like to conceive as the perfect place for my paintings, not in a cold museum with no furniture or no sense of life. It's in somebody's house. It's in somewhere that you can sit down and contemplate. And I like somewhere like the V&A Museum, again, where you can see paintings and furniture and jewellery and silverware all mixed up together it breaks down the hierarchy as well I think painters like to think that they're on this pedestal um, those sculptures should be on a pedestal but you know what I mean um, <laughs> that they're above all other forms of art or craft and that's just ridiculous I think printmaking and tapestry and jewellery making or fashion as well is every bit as interesting and every bit as complex and Uh, entertaining as painting should be. For some reason, painting is all we consider to be a high art. I'm never quite sure why. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? I suppose an early experience that I think I always look back upon as having thought that, wow, that really did change the way that I conceived art could ever be, was seeing Andrei Tarkovsky's The Mirror for the first time and being absolutely blown away by the complexity of emotion in it. 
that at one point there's a, a lady in a factory in Russia and she realises something has gone wrong in the factory. You never find out what's gone wrong and it's this panic that breaks out as everybody in the factory is trying to figure out what has gone wrong because they know that the, the wrath of Stalin will come down upon them if they don't figure out this small mistake, um, this typographical error, whatever it is. He captures a sort of a certain angst, which I think is probably quite specifically Russian, but we all have it in us. And so, yes, seeing Tarkovsky and Solaris again, seeing that film and understanding sort of... It has a particular beauty to it, Solaris. It's both escapist and it's absolutely internal and and to do with the the emotion of the here and now all in one go. He's often seen as a, a painterly filmmaker. Do you spot that? Is that something that you would respond to? Oh, very much so. In in um, Tarkovsky's film, Andrei Rublev, it's about a painter, Andrei Rublev, but it goes from one set piece using a cast of thousands, and there was no CGI in those days. It really was a cast of thousands for battle scenes. Or there's one point in Andrei Rublev where they're creating a bell, they're casting it into the earth, and it's just mud and blackness and thousands of people there to make this bell. And his sense of composition is just gorgeous. You have detail and you have large vistas all in one scene. Extraordinary. Which writers or poets do you return to? If it's going to be a poet, I think it does have to be T.S. Eliot, really, because that sense of foreboding which he has... I always think I want that in my painting. I want that sense of that something is not right. It's a dark world, he depicts. You know, it's, it's a wasteland. Even his sense of humour is a sort of, it's a dark one. It's, again, it's about, you know, talking about visceral shocks with Maria Lasnig. I, I read The Wasteland and had a visceral shock as a result. You know, beginning a poem, April is the cruelest month. You know, is it, that alone is a line for the ages, isn't it? Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, when we were talking about titles earlier on, that magnetic image is something you're looking for from titles a bit, is it? Yes, it's that sense of conflict in the work. So what does this mean? As you say, why is April the cruelest month? It should be the most beautiful, but it depends on your the way you look at the world. And Eliot was turning the world upside down in many ways and saying, no, everything you thought you understood, you don't. Look at the world from somebody else's perspective. And to a large extent, that's exactly what art should be, forcing you to see the world from somebody else's perspective. And it's a very difficult thing to achieve because everybody gets very obsessed with their own psychology their own culture and it just says no shift look at it as if you haven't seen it before Samuel Beckett I was you know similar period to Eliot as well but um, you know modernist writer but I, I read everything of uh, Beckett when I first encountered it and again the humour in Beckett I mean some of it is really laugh out loud and some of it is sort of quiet wh- whimpering to yourself <laughs> that beautiful sense of language you know the Irish Lilt, which is in all of Beckett's work. I mean, even though he was writing in French a lot of the time, is is mesmerising. And economy too. I mean, I wonder about that in terms of your work, that, that sort of, because you're weaving dense webs of reference and fragments, a bit like um, Eliot, you know, in the sense that reference is hitting you from all sorts of angles. But also there's a terrific economy about your work, isn't there, I would say? Mm. 
I'm not quite sure. I mean, I mean, they were modernist writers, and I'm not a modernist to that extent, and my work is not very economical. If there's ten brushstrokes to be made, I'll make a hundred. But <laughs> I always go over the top in trying to add detail, and I never quite know when to stop. There's an American artist called Ivan Albright. Um, he's best known for his paintings for the portrait of Dorian Gray, the film that was made in the 1950s. Ivan's brother made the portrait of Dorian Gray that existed downstairs, and then the paintings that existed slowly became more horrible and and ugly when the painting was put up in the attic, were painted by Ivan Albright. And very wonderfully grotesque, but he never knew when to stop. So there's, there's detail in the face, there's detail in the clothes, there's detail in the background, in the shoes... The door is just covered in detail, little maggots coming out of it. He never knew when to stop, and to that extent, the paintings look terribly amateurish. But even though there's an obsessive, wonderful outsider nature to them, so you do have to know when to stop. You do have to know when to make the viewer's eye rest a little bit. So hopefully I do learn a little bit from Elliot and Beckett just to slow down, stop, don't add detail to everything, but I'm not an artist of economy, no. (laughs) In talking about literature, I wanted to talk about science fiction because, of course, paintings you made directly from science fiction images are often images that are on the front of books, for instance. And we were talking about images of horror and fantasy earlier on, but did that come from reading science fiction? No. (laughs) I'm not really a science fiction fan, I have to say. Um, I mean, to a large extent, I've read certain of the classic science fiction texts, but no fantasy and Science fiction leave me a bit cold. I always feel that it's too outside of human emotion. And I know that's that's silly because I know a lot of science fiction is very emotive, but it's just not something I ever got myself into. Including film for a large... I mean, I talk about Solaris, and obviously I love 2001, but they're the oddities. The, uh, most the space fiction, oddities. <laughs> yeah, most of the most science fiction films, again, leave me a bit cold. Let's talk about music. It seems to me music is almost the second art to your art, if you like, in the sense that there are so many musical references. But what do you listen to in your studio? I mean, apart from Radio 4 and podcasts that have become increasingly important, I, mean, I do listen to Radio 4 an awful lot, I have to admit. It's this background hum. But in terms of music, I mean, I do like contemporary music. It's not all just historical stuff, especially folk music to some extent. I'd like to artists like Shirley Collins or um, Aldous Harding, um, who's American, Laura Marling, she's English. Mm. It's sort of relatively young. Or Sam Lee, sort of English folk music i think in especially contemporary english folk music is having a really sort of good heyday at the moment but i i, I listen to sort of handel and bach as well and i listen to sort of shostakovich and where we live in suffolk is very close to benjamin britain's house so i listen to britain quite a bit but if i can listen to anybody it'll be handel i think because that sense of movement and the sense of baroque that's what I want in my work. I'm not a classical artist, I'm a Baroque artist to a large extent, and that idea that nature dominates man, man doesn't dominate nature, I think is very important. And that sense of movement that you'll find in Haydn or Handel or Bach is the bones of what I want to make art, I think. 
is it too simplistic to say you're put on handle when you want to do a certain kind of work in the studio? Or? Probably, yes, because I'm slightly more work a day than that. My paintings and drawings take such a long time to make that I don't need to be highly emoted at any one point during the making of it. It's a bit more technical than that, I suppose. You titled an exhibition not long ago, And Thus We Existed, which I believe actually happened when you were in the studio. That title emerged from listening to music, from just listening on the radio. Is it often as sort of immediate as that? that you'll hear words being said in a song and you'll think, oh, that's a good title. Um, yes, very often. I mean, that comes from a sort of Chicago dance track. It's a phrase that's repeated in this particular dance record and I just I like the poetry of it when you're only using three or four words you can find that poetry in all sorts of places and lyrics are sort of a rich source of it and but if I want to get sort of really energetic I listen to something like Nirvana or Queens of the Stone Age just to get really sort of I want to get excited and it's late at night (laughs) something loud that's great you know some of the earlier titles particularly suggest that You were a kind of an indie kid as you grew up. You were listening to the Smiths and Joy Division and they very much infiltrated the work. Again, is that too simplistic or is that something of your origins coming through in the work? No, I think it was very important. I listened to sort of artists like Cabaret Voltaire and early Human League records before Mm. they all went poppy. And pop culture was very important to me because I didn't come from a background of art. I didn't go to museums until I was almost nearly 20 I suppose so culture to me was mostly pop music and therefore if I could hear people like Joy Division making records that were referring to a variety of cultures as well but also the idea that you could make dance music that was also very melancholic you could refer to this sort of industrial past of Manchester was in that sort of dark sense of foreboding that I think we all had been brought up in the Cold War because it was when I was a child I realised that the nuclear clock was always sort of a few seconds away from midnight and that the the world could end any second and where I lived in rural Norfolk was near several American air bases so I knew there was a likelihood if parts of Britain were going to get nuked we'd be near some of them so sometimes you'd hear the roar of uh, military airplanes going over the top and you think oh here it comes is the end. So that sense of foreboding is something that I and my generation, I think we lived with, that, that notion of duck and cover, that, yes, get under the table because the entire world's about to end. It was something that became normal. And how odd is that? <laughs> no wonder there's a sort of darkness to everything I do. You mentioned that your work is operatic and you've just done designs for a prom. So... Is this a new strain in the work? Could you do opera design for the future? Well, this wasn't a design for an opera. It was a a piece of work called Glass Handle, and it was a mixing of work by Philip Glass and George Frederick Handel, and it was a countertenor. I love the the, the voice of a countertenor, and Anthony is absolutely exquisite, his voice. The, The idea that a male voice can reach such high notes, I think, is next to God in, in many extents. It's, it's otherworldly. And Handel extensively wrote for countertenors, voices, obviously, because it was very fashionable in the 18th century. But I was doing live paintings that were, had sort of almost back projection. I had a light source behind me, a very large screen in front, so I was painting live as the music 
carried on. And so painting, I, w- I was painting to handle and Philip Glass, which are two things that I would quite happily do in the studio anyway. The big difference was that I, rather than having two or three months to make a drawing or a painting, I had 60 minutes. So it, with the speed, that was something new to me. And also the scale, it was two or three times the size of anything I've ever made before. So I was having to do things at speed, at a scale which I'd never done, and I absolutely loved it. It was There was drips everywhere, and there was brush strokes that didn't quite work, but you just have to say, oh, it doesn't matter. Just carry on. It's all... Just keep going, keep going. Do the works become a work now, or what, what happens now? Um, they're not really quite works, because the work was the performance. Because I was very aware that I was painting, and people could see my gestures they couldn't see me but they could see my the gestures of my hand very clearly um, as I was painting and it was performance I was painting with the music Um, literally the gestures the brush strokes I was making changed according to the music I was listening to and I knew the music very well and so certain areas are more intense than others in the paintings I very much was letting the music take the high hand so the finished items aren't necessarily works it was the performance itself which was the work and I like that a lot I think it's exactly how it should be. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? A cup of tea as soon as I get to the studio I put the kettle on and make tea I don't drink coffee I don't drink alcohol I don't smoke so tea is my only (laughs) vice and I like that very weak but it just gives your hand something to do when it's not painting and it makes me feel at home and to me studio is home it's where I feel most comfortable in the world it's where I'm most calmest if I have a headache I come to the studio and start painting and the headache goes away if there's any concerns I have with anything else I come to the studio and I just think about work and the rest of the world can just disappear so painting is my escapism to a large degree that's wonderful to hear. Is it also important to have things that take the preciousness away from the action of making a work, you know, in the sense that you need distancing objects or distancing rituals that somehow stop you getting too tight or stop you over-focusing on certain elements? I mean, I like concentrating on what I'm doing, but the two things that make me try and loosen up and try and look at the work from, as if from somebody else's perspective is a mirror... I always have a mirror in the studio. It's my most important tool so I can see the work back to front. I also take a photograph on my phone, put it on my computer and flip it back to front and see what it looks like on the computer screen if I'm making a painting. It just helps me with composition. But the most important thing is to have friends come by and look at the work as I'm making it and criticise the work as I'm making it and saying, oh, no, you haven't got this bit right, you need more colour there, this bit's superfluous, just get rid of it. Um, and they can be quite cruel um, because they know me well, but that's really important to have uh, other people's opinions to help me along because you can get stuck in a rut and you can think, oh, it's finished, I'm quite happy and um, it looks great, and somebody comes in and go, no, it doesn't, this, this falls really short of what I know you want it to do. And you see the world as it actually is and you go, damn it, of course they're right. (laughs) If you could live with one work of art, what would it be? I can't think of anything really. Again, can I want to live in a museum? If I can, can, can the work of art be the National Gallery? Um, and <laughs> if I the gallery, just... if the National Gallery is an installation, a singular installation, I know it's a bit like if you're asking, this is like Desert Island Discs, and you try to cheat. 
But the world's so varied and human emotions so varied that having one work to capture your entire life, if you could just live with one thing. Well, as I said, I have in the studio, I have this Henrik Holtius um, Pieta. That tides me by in between other work because it's, it's an immensely clever and emotive little etching. It's just an etching. It's tiny. It's only about 10 centimetres tall, but it has so much power in it. I mean, Christ and the Virgin Mary are literally radiating energy from it. The sky is full of detail. Every inch of the, the bit of paper is covered in information that tells you how energetic he feels about this subject. So I'll go for this little etching, Pieta. And lastly, what's art for? Entertainment. Um, I would like to think that it was something greater than that, that it was educational, that it could change the world, that it could alter cultures, that it could make people nicer to each other. But I'm not sure it can, you know. I think that it's, it's entertainment. And we find our entertainment in many different ways, and I think that should be enough. Glenn, thank you so much. Thank you. Glenn Brown's exhibition, We'll Keep On Dancing Till We Pay The Rent, is at Gagosian in West 24th Street, New York, from the 10th of November to the 23rd of December. He also features In Things, a history of still life since prehistoric times, at the Louvre in Paris from the 13th of October until the 23rd of January 2023. Glenn's next retrospective, The Real Thing, is in two museums, the Landis Museum and the Sprengel Museum in Hanover in Germany from the 23rd of February to the 24th of June 2023. And the Brown Collection, Glenn's museum of his own work, opens in Bentic Muse in Marylebone in London during Freeze Week in October 2022. Visit Glenn's website, glenn-brown.co.uk, which also has an excellent catalogue resume of Glenn's work, for more details. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening to hear the rest of our first 50 episodes. And do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Please also subscribe to our other podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the Art Newspaper podcasts are Amy Dawson and Henrietta Bentel. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway. A big thank you to Glenn Brown. See you next week. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.